this week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we finish up the prophet Micah with What Does the Lord Require? Destruction of the Wicked, Awaiting the Salvation of God, Rejoice Not, O Enemy, and Who is a God Like You? Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or on your favorite podcast provider. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 4, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. That's St. Paul's nativity account. It's his Christmas story. We're going to be talking about that account of the nativity from St. Paul. Dr. John Bombaro joins us. He's Special Project Supervisor at the Naval Chaplaincy School in Newport, Rhode Island, and he's author of a column titled The Fact and Fullness of Time. John, welcome back. Thank you, Todd. I appreciate it. You say that when we try to fit God into our life movie, the plot is all wrong, and not just wrong, but trivial. What do you mean by that? I mean that we're not the center of the universe, and our story isn't that which is defining. When we use a phrase like the fullness of time, we're lifting it from Scripture, and it's telling us about the great event that defines all of us. Scholars sometimes use this term meta-narrative, and a meta-narrative is an overarching or umbrella narrative, that's to say, storyline that envelops or encases all other stories or narratives. We live a narratable life, but our narratable life isn't at center and it isn't defining. So when we try to fit God into our life movie, yeah, we have the plot that's all wrong because the story is defined by who God is and what he has done in relation to humanity. And when it reaches stupendous points that careen history into a fresh and new and exhilarating direction like the incarnation of the Son of God, that is clearly defining for all of humanity. So we trivialize God in our lives and when we think that we're going to fit him in. I once received really bad advice from someone on an occasion when they heard that I had become quote-unquote religious, and that's to say I was taking my baptism seriously and was going to live as a, and the best I could as a, an obedient disciple of Jesus, and said, well, you know, good for you. You know, life is like a table, and this religious aspect is like another leg, like a fourth leg under the table of life. The whole reality of it is, is that table is sitting on the foundation of the house of God. I was coming to an awareness and awakening that I'm living within his world. So yes, we trivialize our relationship with God in his reality when we think that we're going to fit him into our story. You mentioned a Lexus commercial that urges us to celebrate whatever. How did we get to that point? There was an interesting column out, even today, I think it was from Naomi Wolf, where she was lamenting the loss of the nativity scenes that used to be back in the 1950s and 60s, almost ubiquitous in America, where the conversation that Christianity had with society, it was front and center. It was part of the normal rhythm of American living. Jesus and theology, Bible discussion was taking place in the marketplace of ideas. It was welcome. 
But more and more, as we've become secularized, Christianity has become marginalized, and that has been reinforced by education, where you have macroevolution, which has displaced the creation story. And so more and more has Christianity and the truth of Holy Scripture been pushed to the very margins of Western society, so much so that rather than talking about what Christmas is really about, which is the advent of our God, that the the King has come, and he's done so to reconcile humanity and to rescue us. It's really diminished now to the point of just trivial consumerism. And hence, we have all these sort of nostalgic and sentimental themes that rise with sort of a Victorian Christmas, all of which may have elements of Christianity in terms of Christian values and virtues that may be present. But the heart of the story, the reason that it is celebrated and prepared with celebration for four weeks during Advent and gets 12 days during the Christmas season to monumentalize how significant and important the incarnation is, really the the biggest story, the most monumental story we could possibly conceive of actually was a fact, took place, has now just been reduced to things like gift giving and such. How is Luke's nativity account really an antidote to the complete emptiness of the world's Christless Christmas? Because Luke is a first-rate historian, and what he does is take us back to the historic event itself, and he tethers it to the people and the places that ground it in the real. So he opens up Luke chapter 3 and says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea, and Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee. And he's starting the story out there when the word of God comes to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Before that, he has Mary, during the time of Augustus Caesar's reign, receiving the word of the Annunciation. All of this is taking place in a real place, not in our hearts, not in a galaxy far, far away, and certainly not once upon a time. It literally happened over there. Where? Israel. Amongst them, who? The Jews, but also the Gentiles that were occupying the land at the time. And when? It happened specifically in this period. So what Luke does is he doesn't allow us to drift off into fantasy, some kind of almost pornographic perversion of what the Christmas narrative is about. And it certainly isn't a corpulent saint that is now Kris Kringle rather than St. Nicholas and replete with elves and flying reindeer and things like that. Rather, he takes us to what really happened so that it's actually inescapable. That history, that time, those people are still tethered to us this day. Tell us about the Apostle Paul's Galatians nativity account. Yeah, so Paul has a Galatians nativity account. When he talks about the incarnation of the Lord, he says that upon the fullness of time that the Word of God, so he's talking about the Son of God, in the fullness of time, Christ comes born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. This is the Christmas account here. And of course, the woman he's talking about is the Blessed Virgin Mary herself. She's not only a woman, but she is the woman, as Jesus will will identify her. She is, as it were, the antidote 
to Eve in the garden, who was the woman taken from Adam. And here now we have Jesus, who is the last Adam, St. Paul calls him, and Eve is the woman, and from him comes the Redeemer and Savior of humanity. And Paul is giving us right there in that same verse in chapter 4, the significance, and that is he's come to redeem those who are under the law. Why? Because we're all condemned by it. Because there is no one righteous, no, not one, that no one seeks after God. Here is God now coming to humanity, seeking after us as one of us, fulfilling the law on our behalf, both in terms of his positive act of righteousness, but also taking the penalty and making a blood atonement for us. How does Luke's account of the nativity informed by Paul's view there, put us into Jesus' story rather than Jesus into our story. Because this now becomes defining for all of humanity. This is now the apex, and time will be measured from this. It'll be a couple of centuries later, but there'll be a rather insignificant monk named Eugenius the Inferior who said, no, we're not going to do the calendar by any other means, but starting with the birth of Jesus himself. And what he was doing was looking to Luke and to Paul and seeing that this really is the apex. This is the fullness of time. And so all of human history was moving to this one point, the point in which God came and was incarnate. Now, I'm not a big fan of the Reformed theologian Karl Barth, but he did have this right when he said that the time of the incarnation was the only real time. And what he meant by that is when God came into the flesh in Jesus of Nazareth, it infused all all of human history going backward and forward to the present and into the future with meaning and significance. Humanity becomes authenticated in Christ Jesus, and there's real human hope there. So Paul and Luke are doing that. They're bringing us to come face to face with the fact of the incarnation, which is one of the great facts of Advent. What does then the fullness of time mean for us? The fullness of time means this, that God was in control and has always been in control, and that this promise-making God who began making promises about redemption to us right in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, with a promise to come as the seed of the woman who would destroy the dominion and crush the head of the serpent, that all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, that all of these threads, all of these lines, all of these thousands of verses in the Hebrew scriptures, which are prophetic, come to coalesce in one magnificent moment, and that is when Mary conceives and then gives birth to a son, a son that God had already foredetermined his name would be Jesus because he would come to save his people from their sins. What insight did C.S. Lewis have about the proper reading of Christ's incarnation and birth? He had two wonderful quotes that go hand in hand. He said this, I haven't always been a Christian. I didn't go to Christianity to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly wouldn't recommend Christianity. That was his first quote. And what he was saying is that if you're just looking for sentimentalism and such, well, don't expect that from Christianity because what you're going to get hit with is the hard facts. His second quote that goes with that is this. He says, we are defending Christianity, not my religion. 
And the great difficulty is to get modern audiences to realize that you're preaching Christianity solely and simply because you're convinced by evidence and reason that it is true. They always suppose that you are preaching it because you like it or you think it good for society or something of that sort, end quote. What he's getting at is this, is that this isn't really about my sentiment or my affinity. This is my kind of favorite religion or it aligns with my values and worldview. We're confronted by Christianity and we're called to conform to it. That's to say Jesus' call to all the world to acknowledge him as Lord and to own him as such is because this is in fact the case. So it isn't about subjectivism or sentimentalism. This is about something that happened and we're being called to it. Lewis is making that point. What I think I really like about this quote here is that it isn't about a recommendation because Christianity isn't offering advice. Instead, it's heralding news and it's giving news that in fact is really good that the king has come and that this is a time for celebration. The other thing I think that Lewis is getting at is this. Only three days after we celebrate Christmas, the church remembers the slaughter of the holy innocents. And these are the children that were in the region of Bethlehem that were slaughtered by King Herod in his attempt to find Jesus and put him to death. In other words, from the moment that Jesus is born, there's a price on his head. That his coming as the world's rightful king is risky and dangerous business. And so too, our allegiance to him, being called as a disciple, is going to come with risk and with some danger. And so what Lewis is doing is contrasting the two. It isn't about the interior of my heart and the sentiments of joy with Jesus, although our Lord most certainly gives us joy and that's part of the fruit of the Spirit. What he is saying is that this is so compellingly true and obvious that it's going to come sometimes with some great risk, and Jesus told us so himself. Dr. John Bambaro is our guest. We're talking about the Apostle Paul's nativity account. We'll go to Luke's account of the nativity and why he includes these historical references and waypoints next. Faith once for all delivered to the saints. You're listening to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Welcome back to Issues Etc. We're talking with Dr. John Bambaro about his column, The Fact and Fullness of Time. Dr. Bambaro is a graduate of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana where they form servants in Jesus Christ who teach the faithful, reach the lost, and care for all. Learn more about studying for the vocations of pastor or deaconess in 2024 at ctsfw.edu or by calling 1-800-481-2155, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Bambara, why does Luke in his account include historical references and waypoints? Well, he includes them because... It's important that we understand when these took place, that these things are grounded in real human history and are not merely folklore or fantasy, 
although he does invoke the sanctified imagination to understand how some of these things may have taken place. And indeed, many of the things are inscrutable. For instance, the conception of a virgin. How does that take place? Or indeed, even the forgiveness of sins or the triunity of God, that requires an element of imagination. What Luke wants to do is make sure that we understand that what he is conveying to us is news of the most significant earth-shaking and history careening into a fresh direction that it's unmistakable. He's not exaggerating, he's conveying the facts, and this is why he is a first-rate historian. He's going to use names that we can go back to and reference. He's going to talk about people and places and events, just as all of the Gospelers do, so much so that St. Paul could say, even on trial before a king, that these things were not done in a corner. All of it was done openly. And I think this is one of the most staggering facts of Christianity, unlike what Christopher Hitchens used to say, that we go to one of the most remote parts of the desert in the ancient world where the people were illiterate. Far from that, Luke tells us that these events happened in the capital city with the most high-profile political and religious figures, that it happened in public events like a public trial and condemnation, in public crucifixion, and that Jesus was even entombed in a public location. So no, these things weren't done in the corner. They were done right in the face of the players of the day. They were recorded by the evangelists, and there were thousands of witnesses to these things. What Luke wants us to do is understand that the events concerning of Jesus of Nazareth are rock-solid facts. You talk about three ways that the world was really perfectly prepared for the coming of the Messiah. What are those ways? Well, I I think the advent of Christianity is prepared because a, a number of things take place to bring us to this convergence. We could go all the way back to the preparations for the advent of the king, begin with the dissolution of Israel in 722 BC when the Assyrians come down and obliterate the northern 10 tribes, which means that Israel is going to need to be reconstituted, and that entails us, the Gentiles. But the three that I mention in here is that we have the political influence of the Romans, we have the cultural and intellectual influence of the Greeks, and then lastly, the religious influence of the Jews. Concerning the Romans, what you have in place is Caesar Augustus inaugurates the Pax Romana, or the Roman peace, and that allows for a lot of economic and political stability and growth, which facilitated widespread travel in the days. I mean, as we read through the missionary travels of St. Paul, we would be astonished. Hardly could anyone even travel so much even today. But immediately following the fall of the Roman Empire, people did not travel like that. You get onesies and twosies that go out and they become the great explorers that leave us through the annals of their travels and such. So what the Roman Empire did was they established a climate and network of fantastic roads that allowed for the the spread of the gospel to happen very quickly and with reliable means of movement with a, a good degree of security. The other thing I think that was important, too, about the Romans is that they had army outposts everywhere, all the way up to Britain and reaching out to Spain. And so when 
soldiers began to be converted. These are Roman soldiers and were appointed in different garrisons around the empire. What they brought with them was the good news of Jesus Christ. These are some of the early unsung evangelists and missionaries of Christianity who were teaching our holy faith, the truth about Christ, back in the first and second centuries. The second thing was the Greek influence. And what was really important here was Aristotle, of course, was the tutor for Alexander the Great. And when Alexander the Great expanded his empire, he took Aristotle's philosophy, which was about unifying the world. We kind of really get the concept of a university, what gives unity to all the diversity from largely the thinking of Aristotle. In fact, for instance, the greatest scientific endeavors of the world in terms of being well-funded and expansive were really those explorations of Alexander the Great in which he would send flora and fauna back for categorization to Aristotle. I mean, this is the rise of taxonomy, for example, and in categorization of all the different species. The other thing it did in terms of unification was bring language as a unifying factor. This is how we wind up with Greek throughout the known world of its day, so much so that one of the Ptolemaic kings asks some Jews, in fact, 72 of them, to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, and that becomes the Septuagint. And the Septuagint is so significant because we find Jesus and St. Paul quoting from it. It was the version of the scriptures, that's to say the Hebrew scriptures, which were promulgated throughout the empire. And so we have not only reliable means of transformation, not only do we have an inbuilt network for the dissemination of the gospel throughout the empire in terms of the Roman soldiers, but now we have a unifying factor in terms of language, and this becomes very significant. And the last one I'll mention is the contribution of the Jews. And this is really important because their scriptures, and particularly the Septuagint, when it was translated from Hebrew into Greek, those Jewish scholars underscored messianic overtones. They heightened a messianic expectation that the arrival of a Messiah, some of them thought maybe it was going to be two messiahs, maybe one's a priest, one's a king. However it may be, the expectation was really high and so much so that we find immediately prior to the days of Jesus we have the likes of Simeon and Anna who are anticipating the arrival of God's great Messiah the world's rightful king so what is the comfort of the coming of Jesus in the fullness of time well the comfort that it brings is that it bears on this wonderful point that God so loved the world that he gave, this is the great gift, his only begotten son. And he gave him that we might be saved, that we would be redeemed. The great comfort that it brings is that he came for the likes of you and for me. To think that the fullness of time coalesces in the advent of our Lord Jesus, and it really begins with the Annunciation to the Virginal Mary, and it concludes, of course, with the Ascension of our Lord Jesus. But he comes for you and me, Todd, and for all of our listeners. The great comfort is not only has he come and was it grounded in real human history, but he achieved all that was prophesied about him, and he's brought in a kingdom more wonderful, more peaceful, full of joy than we could possibly have anticipated. So we're not going to celebrate like the Lexus commercial, whatever this season, but we're going to celebrate the fact that we have a king and that our king is loving and that this is the day of grace and that today is the day of salvation. 
Dr. John Bombaro is Special Project Supervisor at the Naval Chaplaincy School in Newport, Rhode Island, and author of a column titled The Fact and Fullness of Time. John, thank you very much. Have a very blessed Advent, Todd. Pastor Chris Roseborough of Fighting for the Faith joins us next for This Week in Pop Christianity. We'll hear a little bit of Stephen Furtick's sermon on the Christmas narrative titled, The Pajamas Are a Prophecy. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for December uses detailed illustrations and rhyming text to tell the story of Jesus' birth. It's titled, N is for Nativity. This new hardcover children's book is published by Concordia Publishing House, their phone number 1-800-325-3040, or learn more about N is for Nativity at issuesetc.org. Use the ABCs from Advent to Zion to teach your children and grandchildren the Christmas story with N is for Nativity. In the Advent season, we reflect on the birth of hope. Luke 2, 6 tells us, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. In the quiet moments of Advent, let's embrace the anticipation of Christ's birth. From all of us at Lutheran Church Extension Fund, may this Advent season fill your heart with hope, love, and the promise of a new beginning. Grace, Faith, Scripture, and Christ Alone. You're listening to Issues Etc. At Memoria Press, the Simply Classical curriculum is specifically designed for students with significant learning challenges. This complete program includes everything you need for a school, self-contained classroom, tutoring, or homeschool to make a classical Christian education accessible for any child. To learn more, visit us at simplyclassical.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Simply Classical, a beautiful education for any child. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now.